1: This is the Naked Genetics Podcast, taking a look inside your genes.
2: For centuries, enthusiastic breeders have been selecting plants and animals with desirable genetic traits, changing many species almost beyond recognition. So how have some of these changes come about? And where will new genetic technologies take our food in the future? The chicken has
1: changed hugely in the last 50 years. The chicken of the future will maybe be more resistant to a lot of different diseases. I think that's going to be one of the big targets.
2: Plus, breeding a better cow. Viagra for malaria, and a gene of the month with an Italian twist. This is the Naked Genetics podcast for June 2015, with me, Dr. Kat Arney, Brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. This month, with a slightly sore throat, I'm continuing my reports from the Genetic Society spring meeting, breeding for bacon, beer and biofuels, held up at the Roslin Institute in Edinburgh, birthplace of Dolly the Sheep. As we heard in the previous episode, selective conventional breeding has wrought huge genetic changes in the plants and animals that end up on our plates today. And then there's the new frontiers of genetically modified, or GM, organisms, as well as the latest precision gene editing technology. Jenny Price from La Trobe University in Australia is bridging the gap between breeders and geneticists in order to breed better dairy cows. I started by
3: asking her to explain what farmers are looking for in the perfect milker. Modern breeding objectives, which are, I suppose things that include all the traits that are important for um, productivity on farms, they'll include a diverse range of traits. So obviously milk production is very important because that's what farmers are paid for, but equally it's very important that they have cows that can get in calf. To produce milk, cows have to calve every year, so that's obviously a very important trait. They're also interested in breeding for disease resistance, so resistance to mastitis, lameness and so on, and also uh, increasingly feed efficiency. So it's really incorporating all the traits that contribute to profitability, but also with a view on animal welfare and sustainability for the future. You mentioned feed efficiency. I don't often think about cows as being efficient. What's that about? So actually what we've seen over the last 50 years or so is a massive improvement in efficiency. So a cow that was around in the 1950s would produce, say, about 1,700 litres of milk and the modern dairy cow produces somewhere at about 7,000 litres of milk. The weight of cows hasn't increased that much, which shows us that the efficiency has improved phenomenally. So we reckon that it's somewhere in the region of doubling efficiency just through the breeding objectives that I described earlier, so selection for production primarily. So these cows are better at turning the food they eat into milk coming out the other side? Exactly, yeah, and that's, that's what we've achieved simply through selecting for production. But there are other opportunities as well. What we haven't known in the past is how much cows actually eat. And we're actually able to measure that now, but only in very small populations, so research populations. How do you go about figuring out how much cows eat and then how to incorporate that into breeding better cows? Yeah, so we actually... Um, measure or we weigh exactly how much a cow would eat in a day. And that's not a trivial matter. What we have is pretty high-tech equipment that we um, use to measure each individual meal, if you like, that a cow eats. So a cow will have an electronic ID in her ear And when she goes into this specially designed uh, equipment, it'll record her identification as well as the amount of feed that she eats. And we can calculate the average that she eats over a day or over several months if we want to. So you can look at all these different cows,
2: you can see how much they're eating, how much milk they're producing. How do you then tie that back into their genetics and which are the genetically the
3: best cows? So this is the absolutely fantastic thing that we now have um, this technology called genomic selection, where we can use many genetic markers on each individual cow or bull that we're interested in, and we marry that with the data that we have on feed efficiency, or or feed intake, to put it simply. And we look for, uh, I suppose, patterns in terms of uh, associations between those genetic markers and feed efficiency. And that together, that tells us, uh, I suppose, how good a particular animal might be in terms of its genetic potential for feed efficiency. So the great thing about it is that we can translate information that we have in a research population and apply it to animals that have genetic markers or genotypes, but don't actually have A measure on feed intake. And that's incredibly powerful because all of a sudden you can have that information available to a very large population of cows or bulls.
2: So basically what you're doing is you're measuring the cows in your research population. You're saying, okay, they have gene markers, A, B, C and D. They're very efficient, these ones. And then you can go and look at totally unrelated bulls, breeding bulls and go, oh, they've also got
3: A, B, C and D. These are going to be the ones you want if you want to turn less food into more milk. Exactly. The the principle is, is is right. But, in fact, in dairy cattle populations, there are a lot of relationships between individuals. And that actually works to our advantage. So, if you like, the, the trouble or the problem that they have in human genetics is that they don't have those relationships between individuals, which makes it harder to get those genetic predictions. In dairy cattle, because we've used a few bulls as the sires of the next generations, it means that we can make those relationships a lot more easily. Why is it important to have efficient cattle? I mean, what, what benefit is that for farmers? It's obviously important because feed is the largest variable cost on uh, most dairy farms. So if they can cut their feed bill, it's got to be a good thing. And um, if you actually ask farmers, it's one of the main priorities in terms of traits that they'd really like to breed for, feed efficiency.
2: At the beginning of your talk, you showed a picture of a cow from the 1950s and a cow from today, and they looked very, very different, and you'd think, oh, that's some kind of weird mutant cow that's, that's gone on there. But this is all the changes that we've seen in our cattle. They've all just been done by selective breeding over time. Have there been any traits introduced by this breeding that, while they've been good for farming, have been negative traits for the cattle?
3: Yeah, there, there's some. There's a few examples actually. One of the most important is the relationship between production and fertility. Now, when back in the 1950s, right through to the 80s, when we were selecting primarily on production, uh, mainly because we didn't have the data on the other traits that there was actually a deterioration in fertility and it was through the 90s into the 2000s that we started to realize that uh, fertility in modern dairy cows was deteriorating quite rapidly and we needed to put a stop to that. So at that point there was I suppose a, a massive effort from around the world to develop breeding values for fertility, uh, mastitis resistance and so on so that we could broaden breeding goals to to include not just production, but also those traits that we want to guard against getting worse.
2: There's been quite a lot of talk recently about using some of the new uh, gene editing technology. Obviously, there's a lot of talk about that. Do you think that the future of farming as well as involving breeding might involve at some point genetically modifying animals, whether that's dairy or for food?
3: Uh, from my perspective, I think that there's still uh, a lot of scope with the tools that we have currently. So genomic selection, um, just using the same sort of principles as uh, that we've used in the past, but with smarter tools to enable us to identify the best animals for certain situations. so So right now, I don't see a major role of gene editing or genetic modification in, in most dairy systems. But who's to say what would happen in the future?
2: That was Jenny Price from La Trobe University. Malaria kills hundreds of thousands of people every year worldwide and the parasites that cause the disease are rapidly evolving resistance to all the treatments that we can throw at them. By studying the molecules that cause certain forms of malaria, known as gametocytes, to change shape, David Baker from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine may have found an unusual new approach for anti-malarial drugs. And it comes in the form of a rather well-known little blue pill.
0: In humans, the problems caused by malaria, all the symptoms and pathology, are caused by quickly replicating forms. And they invade red blood cells. And as they grow over 48 hours, they rupture and burst out up to 20 or 30 new malaria parasites which invade red cells. So you can imagine as those parasites expand, you know, you become anemic and that's often associated with severe malaria. So those are one type of malaria parasite. Now, for reasons we don't understand very well, some of those malaria parasites, when they invade red blood cells, turn into sexual forms, male and female gametocytes, we call them, we call them that because they're the precursors of gametes, because when they get into the mosquito, they, the male and females fertilise to continue the cycle. So those gametocytes, um, they don't divide in the human, uh, they simply mature over about two weeks. These sexual forms as male and female malaria parasites. They get quite large and crescent shapes and normally if a, a red blood cell becomes misshapen like that it would be filtered out by this, our spleen in our body. They need to hide in the body to stop being cleared by the immune system and the spleen and they do that when they're very young. Uh, they go into the bone marrow and hide and it's only when they mature that they become uh, flexible and they enter the circulation. And once they're flexible, they're safe from the spleen because they can squeeze through the capillaries in the spleen and circulate throughout the body. So when the mosquito takes a blood meal, it will take up some of these gametes, sites so that the gametes can fertilise inside the mosquito and continue the cycle. And so what we wanted to understand was exactly how it becomes flexible. So we focused on a particular signaling molecule called cyclic AMP, and we wanted to ask the question... Does cyclic AMP make these sexual cells, these males and females, become flexible to allow them to circulate in the bloodstream?
2: So how did you go about investigating that? How does a molecule, cyclic AMP, how does that change the shape of these parasite cells?
0: Right, I mean, that that is a very good question, and really it's a next step for us to understand the mechanism, how it happened. But the first step was just to ask whether it happened or not. So we used two ways um, in the lab to find out whether increased levels of cyclic AMP made these sexual cells become flexible. So one approach we took in my lab, uh, we knocked out a gene encoding an enzyme called a phosphodiesterase in the malaria parasite. Once we n- Normally, phosphodiesterase enzymes degrade the cyclic AMP signal. So when we deleted the gene, the levels of cyclic AMP went up, as we would have predicted. And so, lo and behold, when we knocked out this gene, the gamete sites became less flexible.
2: So normally, low levels of cyclic AMP is keeping them bendy, and when it rises up, they become stiff and rigid?
0: That's right. I mean, that was the problem. When we raised the cyclic AMP levels due to knocking out that gene, instead of becoming bendy, they they became stiff, essentially. And the other way we raised the cyclic AMP levels was to use small molecule inhibitors of phosphodiesterases. So we used several, and one of the ones we used was Viagra. Now, that's quite a well-known inhibitor of phosphodiesterases that's um, used to treat male erectile dysfunction. And so here we had a situation where... Increase in cyclic AMP levels with Viagra, we could make these sexual cells, malaria parasites, become stiff as well. In a human, if that happened, if those mature gamete sites became stiff, they'd be filtered by the spleen and inactivated, and you wouldn't get any transmission.
2: And was there a little bit of sniggering in the lab when you sort of realised that uh, what was going on?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, always when we mention we're Working with Viagra in the lab, uh, people sort of have, have the odd snigger, so uh, absolutely. And uh, Catherine came up with the, the good headline that it made sites stiff, so yes.
1: That
2: was David Baker from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. You're listening to the Naked Genetics podcast with me, Dr Kat Arney. Still to come, we'll be finding out how GM chickens could beat bird flu and meeting a gene of the month with an Italian twist. But first, it's time to return to the Genetic Society spring meeting on animal and plant breeding. Wheat is a hugely successful and important agricultural crop, originating from simple grass and grown in many parts of the world but while its golden ears may seem as commonplace in the countryside as bread, pasta and other wheat products in the kitchen, its genetics are very unusual. I spoke to Alison Bentley from NIAB, the National Institute of Agricultural Botany in Cambridge, to find out about
4: the journey from grass to wheat
2: and how she's trying to reconstruct it. So the domestication
4: and evolution of wheat started about 100,000 years ago in the Middle East when two grass species came together and created intermediate wheat form and this later hybridized another time to produce what we know today as as wheat and what we grow to produce bread and grain for animal feed the wheat that we have today that didn't just get there it's been helped along the way by farmers going oh I like the look of that one. I like the look of that one. Exactly, that played a big role in it. So these grasses were growing in fields in Turkey and areas of the Middle East, and the early farmers were selecting the the plants that had evolved through this this coming together of multiple species, and they were selected and moved forward and disseminated to different regions, and and that was really what what dro- drove this domestication and evolution of the wheat we know today. Tell me a bit about the genetics
2: of wheats, what's going on under the hood, because they are quite unusual, and about the the
4: genetics of the, the wheats, the kind of wheats that are grown today in
2: agriculture.
4: Uh, Yeah, I mean, when you drive past a wheat field, you know, it just looks like a grass growing there. But underneath that is extremely complex genetics. So it does still maintain the genomes of these three ancestral grass species, which grew individually in fields in the Middle East. And those three genomes still exist, and they're huge genomes, and they're very difficult to decode. So we have a really big challenge in trying to understand the underlying genetics in wheat. I heard they had about 100,000 genes, is that something like that? Something like that, and there's a huge amount of repetitive DNA and, and all sorts of challenges in the way if you want to sequence any of that information.
2: In terms of the wheat crops that are grown maybe in
4: Europe, in the US, in other parts around the world, how similar are they all? So they're fundamentally very similar, so they vary just for a few adaptive characteristics that enable them to be grown across that range and that's really when wheat moved out of the Middle East those are the type of changes that had allowed it to move out of those regions so into hotter drier environments to wetter cooler environments and those genes really played a big role in the spread of and the spread and domestication of wheat throughout the world. And then presumably over the past couple of hundred years as it became commercialized and farmed on a grander scale fewer and fewer types got grown. Exactly so selective breeding has really narrowed that base So we're really uh, making varieties and crossing those varieties to select new varieties. So we're working on quite a small, uh, small base of genetic diversity. Tell me about the work that you're doing then to try and increase the genetic diversity in wheat. So that's exactly what we're trying to do. We're saying this genetic basis is very low and that's a limitation to our ability to improve wheat in the future. And we need to do that because the levels of yield are plateauing all throughout Europe. So what we're doing is going back to the Middle East, uh, collecting a wide range of accessions of the original grass species, saying, can we recreate wheat as it was created in nature all those years ago? Can we do that? And by doing that, introduce new diversity that we can then exploit in breeding.
2: So the grasses that are growing now, they've had you know, thousands of years to
4: accumulate new traits or maybe just combine in new and more interesting ways. Exactly. And I think the original hybridization events, so these in, initial events that created wheat, occurred in quite a small region, whereas these grasses occur over a really wide geographic range. So you've got the Tibetan Plateau, you've got Inner Mongolia, so lots of different environments. So you can imagine in each of those regions they've evolved to different circumstances, different nutrient availabilities, different temperature and climate. So it's a really rich source of diversity for us to use.
2: One of the hot topics it's hard to avoid in science is climate change. A lot of places where crops are grown, they may be getting drier or saltier. Do you hope that these new kind of reconstructed wheats might be better cut? better equipped to cope with these challenges.
4: Yeah, exactly. And that's what we see with whenever we look at this these grass species and the material we derive from them. So we have lines that perform Uh, maintain their yield at lower input levels so you can apply the same or lower amounts of inputs and that's a really topical thing in agriculture. You can apply less nitrogen and hold the yield so these are bringing in really new uh, exciting diversity for those kind of traits which are very topical. So less fertilizer basically. Exactly so if those if you could maintain the yield so even if you could only maintain current yields but apply half the nitrogen That would represent a significant cost and environmental saving so in this case if we can do that and increase the yields then you know that's really we're on a winner with that. It's
2: a lovely picture to think of you and your colleagues collecting all these grass around the Middle East and crossing them in your lab how do you turn that into the amount of seed you'd need to to fill an entire field or or a whole country's fields?
4: Yeah so there's definitely that issue of scaling and the time it takes to do that in wheat so we have a, what we call a pre-breeding pipeline where we move the material through from those initial crosses in the glass house uh, doing all that really fine scale work and then we have the ability to scale that up fairly quickly to material which we can disseminate to other people and that they can grow and assess as well. In a recent podcast, we had a discussion
2: about intellectual property, particularly around crops and agriculture, and uh, whether there should be patents and these kind of things on crops. Are the strains that
4: you 're coming up with the kind of things that, that could be patented that companies could still control? Not really, so there's a treaty governing the use of wild relatives and they belong essentially to the country in which they were collected and they can't be directly commercialised on. And the project that we work on, funded by BBSRC... In that project, all the material we create is completely IP-free. So none of the data, none of the material is held or owned by anyone. So we're freely distributing that material really with the view that it can be used to improve UK wheat and wheat more widely. So it's really what we call public good plant breeding. So we're producing resources that are then freely available for people to use. ab's Alison Bentley there.
2: Every year, roughly 10 chickens are raised for every human on the planet. And these birds are a vital source of protein, not just for eggs, but their meat too. Mmm, wings. But avian flu, or bird flu, is a big problem in many regions, putting chickens, farmers and the wider population at serious risk. Helen Sang from the Roslyn Institute in Edinburgh has dedicated her career to developing genetically modified chickens with the hope that they can be made resistant to avian flu.
1: So we're really interested in disease resistance, so there are all these billions of chickens, and because we keep so many of them, uh, there are a number of diseases that uh, can wipe them out, um, and one of those diseases is avian influenza or bird flu. I've been working for some years now with uh, Lawrence Tiley at Cambridge University uh, to try and generate genetically modified chickens that are resistant to bird flu.
2: How are you doing with that? Because obviously bird flu doesn't affect
1: just chickens. It's a a
2: serious problem in humans
1: too. So it's a very big concern. Yes, it's a a big concern. And uh, that's one of the reasons that it's our prime target, is that bird flu gives rise to human flu. Uh, and is the uh, causes the human pandemic so not only is it a real problem to the chickens who get sick and die uh, to the farmers who produce them because it causes huge losses but it is also a potential source of human pandemic flu so if we could uh, work out a way of genetically modifying chickens so they were resistant to bird flu uh, i think it would be really seriously considered as a as a an application of gm in commercial chickens
2: Tell me about how you go about that. How do you make a chicken that uh, either can't get bird flu or can't pass it on?
1: So this is where Lawrence comes in because he has a lot of bright ideas. Because he's a virologist, he works on influenza virus. So he's developing ways that you can express very small molecules in the chicken that will block the replication of the flu virus so when a chicken is infected by flu it can't copy itself and shed more virus which would infect more chickens or infect people so that's our aim is to find uh, neat ways where we can uh, generate small molecules in the chicken that will be there when the the chicken is infected with flu and will block block the infection
2: how's that work coming along so far
1: Well, we've had some success. Uh, Our first work, which was published a few years ago, we expressed a small molecule which seems to stop, not the chickens getting infected, they do get infected, but it seems to stop them passing the flu virus on. And uh, we're now trying out sort of elaborations on that theme to see if we can make that response stronger so that the birds Uh, don't succumb to infection at all and we also want to uh, understand more about the original experiments why those birds don't pass on the disease.
2: We hear a lot about GM crops people some people are very concerned about eating foods that may have been altered with GM technology do you think there's a big challenge if you say okay this is a genetically modified chicken people might go whoa no I am
1: not interested in eating that. Yes, I think that's uh, it's the response of some people. But um, I give a lot of talks, and we we have an open day here at the Roslin Institute every year, and we, we specifically talk about and present this. And um, I think that uh, if you give people a chance to understand why you're doing the experiments and what it is that you're doing, they are then uh, can make up their own minds of whether they think it's of value or not. And Uh, When I give talks, I quite often ask towards the end, you know, would you eat a genetically modified chicken that was resistant to bird flu uh, if there was bird flu in this country? Because you don't need it if you're not threatened by the disease. Uh, And I usually get more than half of the audience will say that they would consider this. So I think if people... um, have the opportunity to understand what you're doing and why you're doing it then they will make up their own minds rather than just seeing it as blanket gm is bad i won't have anything to do with it
2: the techniques that you've been using to make chickens resistant to bird flu they've uh Involved adding genes in, adding molecules into the chickens. Tell me about some of the other approaches that you're trying.
1: Yeah, so there are a whole new technology coming along called genome editing, where you can make very small changes to the genes in the chicken. So you're not adding anything new in, you can tweak the genes in the chicken to give them different characteristics. And this is a very new technology. So we know that uh, it's likely that maybe one breed of chickens will be not with flu, I don't think, but with some other diseases that affect um, chickens only, not, not humans as well, uh, that they may have a copy of a gene that makes them resistant to infection with that disease, but that our commercial chickens don't have that copy of that gene. They have a different version, and, and they're still susceptible to the disease. So we're hoping that these new genome editing technologies will all, allow us to change the gene in the commercial chickens so that is the resistant form that we've identified somewhere else, so it allows us to move versions of genes around between different breeds of chickens without crossing lots of breeds together and losing the the good characteristics that we want to keep.
2: What do you think the chicken of the future is going to be like? How mm-hmm. have chickens changed over the past sort of fifty years, and what do you think the chicken will be
1: like in the years to come? Yes, the chicken has changed hugely in the last 50 years, uh, but it's a very gradual change. So poultry breeding makes small changes. And when you add them up over the years, it turns out it's a big change. The chicken of the future will maybe be more resistant to a lot of different diseases. I think that's going to be one of the big targets. One of the things I'm interested in as well is can we add in... Uh, a new gene to the chicken that expresses enzymes that will break up uh, undigestible feed. So a lot of food that chickens eat, wheat and maize, which are very valuable grains, and that is an expense uh, and uh, competes with humans for those grains. But then there's a lot of waste in production of those grains, which the chicken can't digest. If we could add in new enzymes into the chicken gut, so they can break down these materials to release the energy components of those uh, plant materials, then maybe chickens would be able to eat a lower quality food and not be so expensive in terms of using high quality grains. That was Helen Sang from the Roslyn Institute. And finally, it's our gene of the month,
2: and this time it's spaghetti, a fruit fly gene that may be the missing link between the body clock and neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's. The spaghetti gene helps to control another gene known as double time, which is involved in controlling the length of a fly's daily circadian rhythm, or body clock. If spaghetti is missing, levels of double time fall, and the fly's natural daily cycle becomes longer. Intriguingly, this also leads to the breakdown of a molecule called tau, which is associated with neurodegeneration and brain problems, similar to dementia in humans. Although there's a lot more work to be done to understand the complex clockwork of how circadian rhythms might be linked to dementia, spaghetti provides an important clue to help untangle the problem. That's all for now. I'll be back next month exploring the mysterious and fascinating world of epigenetics as I report back from the recent Wellcome Trust Waddington Symposium, Epigenetics in Dialogue with the Genome. If you've got any questions or feedback, you can email me, genetics at scientist.com. You can also get in touch through the main Naked Scientist Facebook page or tweet me at Naked Genetics. Every episode of the Naked Genetics podcast is on iTunes and it's online at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. The Naked Genetics podcast is brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. I'll see you next month for another peek inside your genes.